Hello there. Welcome to Inspired a Galaxy. In this segment of the ORP, we discuss the artists and stories that inspired us and hope that they inspire you. And now, we present the episode. All right, and hello, everyone. Today on the Old Republic podcast, we are uh, bringing you a very special edition of Inspired a Galaxy. Uh, so before we get started, I wanted to take a minute to go back, uh, back in time, a little over a year ago. So I was getting ready to join up on the podcast, and Cassia says to me, hey, uh, what's your address? I want to send you something. I say, okay, uh, fair enough. I give it to her, and a couple of days later, I get a package in the mail. And in that package is a book. It's The Writer's Journey, Mythic Structure for Writers. And inside of the cover is a note that she gave to me. And it says, welcome aboard the podcast. I'm excited to have you join as co-host. The future looks bright. And it goes on to say, I hope you enjoy this book. I loved reading it. I hope it will be a benefit to the podcast. All the best, Cassia. So I got this book, The Writer's Journey, uh, by Christopher Vogler. And yeah, it's it's been an important part of you know, getting the podcast going and the way we've kind of ran it over the past year uh, since I've been on, it's been a very important part of Cassia's uh, kind of life and, you know, coming up as, you know, an aspiring writer and teller of stories and, and you know, all things uh, writing and going on these journeys. So today we are very excited to have Chris Vogler with us, uh, the author of The Writer's Journey. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm really, really happy to be here. This sounds like uh, just the crowd I was thinking about when uh, I wrote the book. Uh, I, I, I feel uh, a, a good uh, receptive kindred spirit here. So uh, I'm glad to, uh, Sharon, I'm very curious to know uh, what's on your minds and how you react to the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So, so I'd got, I got the book, um, from Cassie, I wasn't I wasn't super familiar with it. My my background is is not literature. It's it's not um, like English composition, anything like that. But I've always been a big fan of of stories, of of films, of books, um, of of television, and you know, kind of how those stories were told. So I was really excited to get this book and have kind of a um, a good manual on how these stories are created, how they're broken down. Um, you know, how they come into come into being and, and the different aspects of it. And it really helped me kind of, you know, get more out of the stories I was absorbing, taking in, and then the stories that we wanted to tell on the podcast. So I was definitely excited to get this book and have the have the chance to read through it. And, you know, very excited to have you on the on with us today. So thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. You know, you use a, a word manual and, uh, you know, you could also say handbook. It's the same word by derivation, the manual is hand in Latin, and it, it, it means something that you can hold in your hand, a hand book. Uh, and, and that was really my thought, was to think in terms of craft and how uh, in different crafts, like cinematography, for example, there's a handbook that the American cinematographers put out, which tells you, you know, how to do uh, measurements of focal length and how to uh, light and, and all the technical aspects of it. So I wanted something like that for writers. I, I wanted some handy uh, uh, reference thing, um, you know, because I've been looking for that myself. That's really the motivation. And I think a lot of people write books uh, that way, that they feel the need for something 
and they look around and they see, well, no one's written the book on uh, my specialty. So they, 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 they say, well, maybe I'm the one uh, who has the right knowledge and maybe a, a little bit of the writing ability. So you can, uh, you can be that one. Uh, my publisher, Michael Weezy, is a, a very interesting uh, character who's kind of all, all over the place. He knew Buckminster Fuller and uh, hung out with Salvador Dali and is a very, very interesting uh, uh, persona himself. But uh, that's his, his whole idea is uh, books for creative people, for filmmakers and storytellers. And they're all united that way. They're written by people who were experts in their field and uh, looked around and said, hmm, we need a handbook. We need a guidebook. Uh, and maybe I'm the one to do it. So uh, he's got a, a nice library of things like that. And, and mine is, you know, covering a particular area of uh, storytelling that has to do mostly with structure, with how you lay out the story in a sequence that connects with the audience and leads up to something, builds up to a particular emotional effect that you're after and, uh, you know, how you go about that. So that was my intention. Yeah, it's a very interesting imprint and just kind of like seeing uh, what's offered. Uh, I'm like, I need to read all of these. And uh, <laughs> it, it's just a, yeah, like a cool publishing house. I'm pleased you ended up keeping that card, Brian. Like I, I, I didn't yeah. realize I sent one. So that's, that's nice. Yeah, to that's hear. right. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the story of kind of how I discovered this book is uh, I was a student uh, senior in high school and I'd been reading the hero with a thousand faces and like, it's a good book, but like uh, for little baby Cassia, it was a little, it was a little hard to, digest. Uh, it took me a couple of years to, to read, but uh, when I was kind of browsing my uh, bookstore uh, in my town, I saw Chris Christopher Vogler's uh, The Writer's Journey, the, the book with the maze on it. And I kind of was like, oh, this is an amazing, beautiful book. Uh, it's something that kind of like combines like mythology, the hero's journey, the monomyth with movies which I which I love but I was like oh I just can't kind of afford this right now I don't I don't really have the disposable income you know but uh, I kind of saved until I was able to get it and I read it and I think I actually ended up finishing this book before the hero with a thousand faces and if anything it's just kind of a love letter to movies to Joseph Campbell to the stories humans from all times all areas have been uh, telling since we really began to be humans and it's just a book that I love and that's why I shared it with my co-host. <laughs> that's that's great you know and, and this was my impulse in writing the book too. Uh, I had been looking for even from childhood I was looking for sort of for that handbook. I, I, where is the the kind of what we would call today algorithms you know what where are the algorithms for uh, creating these wonderful stories that were so hypnotic to me. You know, I wanted to uh, climb into the screen and, and be part of the wonderful world of, of, you know, fantasy, science fiction, historical movies, Westerns, 
uh, all these things just really lit me up as a kid. And I had the sense there, there must be some style or uh, theory about how these stories are made. Uh, and so I went looking for it and uh, it led me on a path uh, through journalism school at first. And then I went into the Air Force and uh, made documentary films for them and uh, eventually went to uh, film school at uh, USC on the GI Bill and still looking for this uh, mysterious set of, of rules, the, the code of storytelling. And I was lucky uh, to find it in The Hero with a Thousand Faces. I, I saw a film, a very strange film called The Boy with Green Hair in uh, a class. Okay. And uh, it's a really odd film. Uh, <laughs> it, it was in a uh, a class on film noir, which is supposed to be about gangsters and the whole underworld and all this uh, uh, criminal type thing uh, or spies or something like that. But it, it was a little story about a, a refugee boy from World War II who came to America and was an orphan. And he happened to suddenly one day his hair turned green. And it was about all the people reacting to that. And, a uh, very odd choice for the teacher to put this in a film noir class. But anyway, I said um, in the discussion, there was something mythic about the film. and I couldn't put my finger on it. And the teacher said, well, if you're interested in that, and that's what, what comes to mind, why don't you go to the school library and get this book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces? And I'd never heard of it. So I took it uh, from the school library and uh, sort of flipped through it on the bus on the way home. And by the time I got off the bus, my life was completely changed because I had sort of flipped through and I found the outline, which he puts in the middle of, of that book. And, um, you know, he kind of tells you the, the story uh, of the story and, and, and gives you the, the major stages and what's going on psychologically, why those things are there. Um, and it cracked the code for me. So I said, now I've got um, the thing I was looking for. And the, the way I describe it is that um, I feel like as a young student, I was out in the woods looking around at, at the whole scene of storytelling. And I saw some enormous beast moving through the forest. Like I saw part of the head and the neck and I saw a big foot mm -hmm. come down and I saw a little bit of the tail lashing around. And um, I, I think, uh, you know, because I could see certain patterns in the movies that I loved, that uh, the hero usually did something nice to win your uh, favor in the beginning. Uh, the hero uh, had everything against him or her at some point, and it looked like they almost were going to die. Uh, the hero at the end almost loses it and then manages to pull it out at the last minute. And that's very exciting. Um, so I had glimpsed parts of the pattern. But I think Campbell was standing on a higher hill and he saw the whole monster mm -hmm. from, from head to tail. And, uh, and that's what the hero with the thousand faces did was it described that thing in, in great uh, detail and in a very poetic way. So um, I began thinking about uh, how to translate him into movie language because he wasn't interested in movies at all. He had no. hardly seen 
any films. He said once, uh, I heard him say between uh, Charlie Chaplin and 2001, he didn't see any movies. <laughs> so there was a period of about 40 years where he missed out on, on movie development. But uh, he said when he, when he came out of a screening of 2001, he said, they've been reading my book. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's true. They had been reading his book. I found that out later. Um, and it was an influence on, on 2001 and many, many other films, including, of course, Star Wars. And uh, the beautiful thing is that um, Star Wars, the first iteration, uh, came out while I was in film school, about two weeks after I found Joseph Campbell's book. Huh. And so uh, the whole school went to a special screening that Lucas set up because he had been to our school about 10 years before us. Mm -hmm. And uh, he very nicely invited us to a screening at the 20th Century Fox lot. And it was a big treat because I'd never been on a movie set, a movie lot before, rather. And, um, you know, everybody sat there with their mouths open, just agape, because our whole careers are going to be changed. And this is a completely new <laughs> idea, new way of doing things. And right, science, yeah. science fiction in one movie revived a completely dead genre. You could not touch science fiction at that time because everything was all, uh, you know, easy rider and uh, uh, more realistic, grounded stuff. But uh, he, he revived it in a flash. But I was sitting there in the audience with a little different uh, thinking cap on, which is I had just read Joseph Campbell. And so I, I'm sitting there going, there's the call to adventure. There's the refusal of the call. There's the uh, meeting with the mentor. There's the crossing of the threshold. There's, you know, every step that Campbell described was there. So it gave me a lot of enthusiasm and encouragement and, and helped me uh, formulate my ideas. And I wrote a paper for a class explaining why are people lining up around the block to see this movie and then getting right back in line, waiting again to see the movie. Mm. It was like a religious experience and Hollywood didn't get it. They were really stunned. Like, what is this? This, you know, it's like an old fashioned movie serial from the 1930s. Uh, it's like Flash Gordon or something. How is that suddenly <laughs> turning young people on? Uh, you know, Hollywood was bewildered by it, but I, I explained it in terms of this hero's journey thing that it's deep it's uh, something people need and want, and uh, it kind of comes and goes in the culture, but uh, it's, it's always there in some form and, and uh, something that people really need. So that was my, my introduction. Yeah, and I like how you kind of uh, incorporated uh, Dante into that story, because I think the Hero with a Thousand Faces uh, is kind of like the Virgil to to our Dante, you know, like creatively. And it's a life-changing book for many people who have read it and people who have watched uh, The Power of Myth with Bill Moyers. Like, that was also a transformative uh, few hours of television that many people saw. And Joseph Campbell articulated, like, the steps of the, the monomyth and uh, the hero's journey uh very well so you mentioned you you went to film school and you you wrote a pamphlet uh what did you kind of uh end up doing in hollywood then well um there was uh, two things happened in film school and one was this joseph campbell revelation 
The other was just one class I took called Story Analysis for Film and TV. And it was taught by um, a fellow who had been a story editor under uh, uh, Harry Cohn at Columbia uh, back in, in the late 40s, early 50s. And it opened up a whole world to me uh, of a career path. Uh, because, you know, when you go to film school, you think I'm going to be a director or I'm going to be a great screenwriter or, you know, something uh, right. high level. And then you get more realistic and, and realize, well, you know, there's a lot of jobs and a lot of crafts and uh, not everybody can be the director. Um, and this uh, seemed to be well suited to me, this world of working within the studio in what they call script development where they evaluate the scripts and stories that are submitted to them. Uh, and there's a little army of people called story analysts or readers uh, who uh, are the first ones to read the material that the producers and actors and so forth submit. And then they write reports and the studio decides based on, on that whether they're gonna spend money on things or not. And, and then you, you can go deeper also, which I did as I got into those jobs evaluating things in more detail as they get ready to be shot and produced. They have to do a lot of fine tuning on the scripts to make it as good as it can be. So, so there's a little army of people who do that, about 10 people at every major studio. And uh, that did end up being the career path for me. That's how I got my first jobs. And uh, uh, it turned out to be something that I was good at, uh, good at analyzing stories and relating them to other things that already existed, uh, you know, to describe it to somebody. Okay, a script came in and it's a little bit like Harry Potter and it's a little bit like Romancing the Stone and it's a little bit like this. You know, you try to make comparisons so mm -hmm. executives can understand what it is. And then you, you say uh, it, it, it started out great. It's a great premise, but it kind of fell apart in the execution or uh, the execution is fantastic, but they don't really have a good idea. Or the characters are flat, but it's a really good action piece. You know, you you make your uh, comments and then recommend is is this is this something the studio should pursue or not? And and this turned out to be a good uh, career path for me. And all the while, I was applying and testing and evaluating the hero's journey ideas from Campbell. And eventually wrote a memo when I, after some years, I'd been working in the business for about 12 years uh, and ended up at Disney. And while I was there, I wrote, uh, it's kind of rewrote my college term paper into a memo because they used a lot of memos at Disney to communicate, uh, you know, the big ideas throughout the studio. And mm -hmm. so I used that format and uh, wrote this seven-page memo uh, about how this idea from Campbell, the hero with a thousand faces outline, could be useful uh, for modern movies, for commercial movies. And uh, that, that turned out to be uh, a wildfire thing that, that just swept all over Hollywood very quickly. It became a viral sensation. And uh, every studio made it required reading, and uh, it was it soon became part of the thinking of Hollywood. And I, I, I knew I was on to something then. Uh, you definitely were. Uh, I mean, here we are more than 25 years later. We're on the fourth edition, and 
Uh, just reading the book, if no one had told me, like, if the book didn't say you were a story analyst, I would be like, oh, this guy must have been a story analyst because that you definitely analyze them well uh, throughout the, the book. And uh, mm -hmm. I just found, like, this... I, I think your writer's journey is definitely more accessible to me. Um, oh, sure, yeah. Because it kind of combines, like, the, the monomyth with Hollywood. And uh, as much as I love The Hero with a Thousand Faces, like, uh, it was just kind of written, you know, like, kind of a few years before me. And I was kind of younger when I was reading it. But uh, I just found uh, the writer's journey to be beautifully written, beautifully illustrated, and just kind of combined all of my loves into one great package. You'd, uh, you'd said it really well earlier, Chris, when you were talking about Campbell and how, how it was almost like he was up on, on top of a hill and he could, you know, kind of see this whole beast of a, of a story, uh, that you were, you know, you were able to pick out kind of certain parts of it. And if you read through, um, you know, any of Campbell's work, you, you kind of get that and it makes a lot of sense and you can look at, you know, other stories and, and media and things and see how that applies, but it doesn't really give you that great of an insight on how to do that for yourself, for your own stories. And I think that's where um, something like uh, what you did with the writer's journey is really, um, you know, kind of, kind of taken, you know, what, what he did and, and creating kind of this, this mythical structure and you're able to kind of break it down and make it, yeah, like Cassie has said, more accessible, um, more digestible and, you know, more, more kind of practical in terms of use for your own, you know, interests in telling stories and things like that. Yeah, well, thank thank you for the kind words about the the book and the illustrations. I'm I'm pleased about that. Uh, I commissioned some illustrations to enhance the book and make it almost like an object of meditation. Those those uh, illustrations are done by an artist friend of mine who uh, really put a lot of uh, thought and feeling into it. Uh, so it gave it another dimension, you know. Um, and uh, I, I think Campbell was. Uh, certainly aware of creative people. His wife uh, was a, a famous dancer and choreographer, and uh, she took his ideas and turned them into ballets. And uh, many people have written compositions uh, of songs and various things uh, and, and plays based on the hero's journey. But he was really talking uh, at a psychological audience um, he was dealing, his book came out in 1949, and there was already a feeling of, uh, well, what's the point? The war is over, uh, the depression's over, and we have the start of some period of prosperity, and uh, everybody's got to be an organization person and go to work and wear a tie and, you know, all this stuff. And it was, there was a feeling of emptiness, and he was trying to address that in his book of like, what's the meaning of life? And, you know, uh, is, is there something to this old uh, model of uh, uh, thinking of yourself as a hero of your own journey uh, psychologically? And uh, so, so he, he moved in that direction. And, and then I came along and, and saw the possibility of applying it to uh, commercial uh, work and, and, and not just movies. Uh, I, I was thrilled a few years ago uh, when a young man from Italy approached me and said, uh, I'm a composer. Uh, his name is Luigi Maiello. And Luigi wrote and said, 
Uh, I'm a composer for film and TV scores and computer games. And uh, I was looking for uh, something. I wanted to write a, a universal symphony like that would work for any movie. And I was looking for the form of it and, you know, thought about maybe a romance sequence and a chase sequence and different, uh, different ways to organize it. But Luigi said his girlfriend brought him my book and said, here's the pattern. This is the universal pattern. And so he composed a symphonic poem in 12 movements because I have 12 movements in my pattern. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he gave me the Hero's Journey Symphony. So I have a piece of music that, uh, you know, it, it is specifically designed to express the, the stuff that's, that's in the book. So I'm, I'm really pleased when it gets used, when, it, when it's uh, applied to the arts somehow, uh, not just in, in movies. That's a big, big thrill for me. Yeah, and these patterns, uh, they've been repeating forever, like, and if you kind of can tap into them, they can serve you in any capacity, like, when you're being creative, I think, and I'll have to listen to that symphony, Uh, it sounds like something Mm -hmm. uh, amazing. It uh, it is, it's it's great music to write by, you know, because... mm very dynamic like movie music is some of it sounds like uh, batman score uh, some <laughs> of it's very wagnerian uh, some of it's like something from lord of the rings kind of uh, sentimental and uh, speaks about uh, the green fields of home i mean you can see these things uh, in in the hear them feel them in the music uh, yeah so it's 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 a great accompaniment to the illustrations and to the ideas in the book it's interesting that you noted that uh, Joseph Campbell wrote it in 1949 when he was kind of addressing uh, the post-war uh, world and like, what's the point after the World War and the and the Depression? Were you kind of trying to address like the times, like when you wrote your book? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting uh, because I think what had happened is uh, going back to the movies just before my time which is usually the movies that influence you the most as a young person is the movies from the time just before yours uh, and, and as you're growing up. But, um, you know, we had gone through sort of an up and down cycle about the importance of heroes in the culture. And as I was growing up in the 50s, uh, heroes were big and inflated and uh, uh, worshipped. Uh, we had John Wayne, we had Burt Lancaster, we had these, uh, you know, Anthony Quinn, bigger than life uh, figures in the movies and um, in the pop culture. And uh, they were almost worshipped. But by the time I got to uh, the Air Force and film school and so forth, the Vietnam War was raging and uh, heroes were mocked and uh, not respected. Uh, John Wayne had been pushed off the pedestal and uh, he was now a ridiculous figure to my generation. So heroes were uh, devalued and degraded. And um, I think George Lucas uh, experienced this and said, well, why does it have to be this way? Why can't we go back to some innocence and celebrate uh, this 
uh, older way of, of uh, enjoying the human story in this kind of inflated way. And uh, I, I was on board with that because I, I miss the cowboy heroes. I miss the swashbuckling Errol Flynn heroes of my childhood. And uh, I, I was ready for a renaissance of that. So uh, my, my book was uh, kind of an answer to the cynicism of my time. Everybody was very uh, uh, down on uh, these old patterns and uh, you know, thought they were funny and quaint. And uh, I thought, no, man, they've, they've got some value. They still have uh, work to do for us. We still need them. And uh, they can, they're perennial and they can come back year after year uh, and, and, and do their good work. And, and you know, that's another thing. Um, we talked about the movies and the music and the dance and these other expressions. Um, one of the greatest joys for me about the book is that people started coming to me and saying, um, you know, I thought I might write a screenplay. And that's why I got your book. But then I realized this is describing uh, my life as a travel agent, or this is describing my situation as a kindergarten teacher. Or this is describing my situation as a, a veteran returning from the war or, you know, and so on and so on. The people automatically took the framework of these 12 events that happened in uh, the heroic type stories they took them and applied it to their own lives. And I, I just found that uh, almost magical thing, an unexpected thing for me. It was a surprise to me how people embraced it and said, this is what I'm using from now on to run my business or uh, to uh, uh, arrange my uh, program of training teachers or something like that. It, it was quite impressive that people uh, took to it that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why we uh, humans have been telling stories uh, because they teach you how to live. It's yeah. like the cycle of birth, life, death, uh, growing up uh, as, as a child, becoming an adult, passing the torch to the next generation. Because sometimes when I talk about the hero's journey, I think some people are like, oh, so you see yourself as the grand hero, mm -hmm. you know, like gonna take over the world or something. And it's like, no, like everyone is, is a hero, you know, like as they, you know, progress through life and be a good person, you know, like we all have different contributions to make in different ways. And that's, that, that's a story of humanity. We help each other. We're connected in a tapestry by stories. Did you have something to say, Brian? Yeah, it's just, I was just going to ask, um, you'd mentioned that people are, you know, applying your book to, you know, different aspects of their life, you know, kind of, you know, irregardless of what their background is. When you, when you set out to write the book, was it more of something that you had, you know, kind of in your mind was going to be for more like industry types, you know, people, you know, more like you who are writing, writing stories, doing, doing film and, and literature maybe, um, or was that always kind of the idea something you had in mind that this could, you know, really have, uh, you know, a pretty broad appeal for people, you know, amongst, you know, all different, uh, you know, sort of, uh, backgrounds and, uh, career paths and, you know, all sorts of things. Yeah, I was aware of it, uh, it, you know, that there was that potential in it because, you know, that's, as I said, <clears throat> what Campbell was thinking about. He was really trying to give people 
uh, a little bit of a roadmap for life and uh, to, you know, give some metaphors that would be helpful to people in, in their personal lives. And uh, I had that in, in my mind because it, it echoed that way for me. I'm reading his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, with sort of parallel processing. One part of my brain is processing it as, oh, this is great for movies. This is, I see that point in this, you know, six different movies. I can see ways to apply it to the script I'm working on. And then the other part of the brain was processing, oh yeah, that was that time the bully tried to push me around and I stood up to him and, you know, uh, that was my heroic moment and so forth. I, I automatically applied it to my life and I figured other people would, would do that too. And I had the little thought that um, it might be in the long run uh, of more value that way than it was for the movies. It, it, mm. I, I have to say, you know, in humility, uh, that the book has been pretty influential uh, because the pattern uh, was there and everybody kind of knew it uh, on some level, but it brought the book brought it up into consciousness and like Campbell, gave some language to it. There were terms that people could use. There were metaphors that people could use, and, and they did end up becoming part of uh, a, a certain branch of Hollywood thinking. Uh, but uh, the, the other side of it was something that uh, I, I had this suspicion would, would end up maybe being more important in the long run. Yeah, for sure. And... I kind of like what you uh, said in in the book. I'm retelling the hero myth in my own way, and you should feel free to do the same. That's why the hero has a thousand faces. If you look at like uh, Campbell's uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, his his hero's journey has I think like 18 steps, uh, mm -hmm. and they kind of go in depth. Uh, and you said yours has 12. Like, what kind of made you decide to kind of like create your hero's journey that way? Yeah, that was a process uh, of uh, kind of feeling around in the dark for what was uh, a good uh, number of steps and, and uh, what was the right shape for it. Um, I ended up with 12, partly because it resonates with a lot of other things like the 12 months of the year and the 12 signs of the zodiac and, you know. Clocks. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the, there's, uh, uh, you know, uh, the AA has the 12 step, uh, the 12 step program and so oh, forth. Yeah. There were there were plenty of echoes that that helped support that uh, choice. But I looked at Campbell and, you know, you said seven, people say 16, 17, 18 points. Actually, uh, by the time he's done, you got 36 different things that can <laughs> happen. But um, they don't happen in every story. Yeah. And um, he was giving you the complete drop-down menu of possibilities. So that's why there are so many things. And it would be kind of a, uh, an awkward story if you put them all in, because uh, mm. some of them are contradictory and, and uh, repetitive, so you wouldn't want that. But um, what I tried to do was make it just a little more universal. So I combined some things 
uh, into units or, or under a, an umbrella sort of uh, where in this phase of the story, uh, maybe five or six things could happen. Uh, you know, five or six out of Campbell's 16 points might happen in one of these stages. Uh, because I, I wanted it to be more like a universal uh, handbook or uh, checklist of, of things that are absolutely necessary operations that have to be done in order to connect with the audience so they understand who is this, what's the problem, what's the world they're in, um, uh, what are the opposition forces, uh, what's getting in the hero's way? Uh, you know, who does the hero have on his or her side helping? Uh, who's fighting against him or her? And, uh, you know, it tried to make it a little bit more of a universal uh, pattern. So I, I ended up with, with 12 things. And some of them were kind of loose, you know, as descriptions. Uh, for example, uh, there's a... a one kind of umbrella I created just called the approach where uh, in the, as you're approaching the middle of the story, you've done a lot of work to connect up to the audience and make them care for the hero and show them where, what his problems are and meet his friends and enemies and, you know, get rolling. Um, and then there's a, a period of time uh, before you get to the middle of the story where there's usually some big fight um, or brush with death. Uh, but there's a period of time of preparation for that. And a lot of things can happen. Romance, espionage, sabotage, uh, uh, practice, rehearsal, reconnaissance, you know, all these different things uh, can happen. So I, I tried to be um, thorough <clears throat> about it and exhaustive and put within my kind of simple pattern, I tried to pack in all of this drop-down menu stuff that Campbell had uh, had mentioned as well. Uh, so it's it's kind of a compromise between his very, very deep, thorough approach and one that's a little bit, you know, more handy and easy to use. So that, that's, that's how I sort of squared the circle on that. Because the hero's journey, the monomyth or the heroine's journey, they're more similar than not, I think. And you can... Uh, whether it's a song or a TV show, sometimes there can just be parts of it and uh, like maybe only certain parts you see happen, maybe some other stuff happens off screen. Uh, but it's, what I like is like, it's just more like of a flexible guideline. It's not meant to be a rigid framework. And if it is a rigid, rigid framework, I think like you're kind of like, taking the, the wrong lesson from uh, the monomyth hero's journey because uh, it's meant to just like uh, stories are meant to adapt and evolve like towards the story that you're creating and different things can be kind of more timely, timeless. It's just like you kind of respond to the time you're in, but like uh, as long as you're kind of like kind of still connected to like the timeless uh, they're really kind of uh, patterns that are instinctive, actually. Like, uh, mm -hmm. 
stories know the way you know the way you know yeah. and yeah yeah you know uh stories are uh not static they're not di- they're dynamic they they don't stay fixed and the same even if the text is the same and even if you see the movie again you're in a different place in your life yeah you, you mm-hmm. never see the same movie twice uh even if it's you know frame by frame exactly the same you change and so your perspective on it changes and every person watching has got a unique uh place they stand that gives them a, a different view of things mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's that's a big point to me. It's certainly been a criticism of my work that, uh, well, this is reductive. Some people say this is uh, simplistic. Uh, you're, you know, also ignoring the uh, uh, taking the fun out of being a creative person and just kind of drawing from the raw material of my soul. You know, and I, I am very firm about that. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm saying, uh, that this whole pattern that I try to expose is like a map. And when you are traveling someplace, you don't have the map pasted to the windshield all the time. You look at the map before you go to kind of roughly figure out where you're going. And then if you get lost, you look at the map again. Uh, and, uh, it, it's, it's not, uh, you know, the trip, the, the trip is not the map. So, um, it, it is a mistake actually to follow it precisely. If you do that, you're going to get a boring movie that's predictable because everybody knows these patterns. Mm-hmm. So my, uh, sort of, uh, cure for that or my, my, uh, antidote to that is to tell people, writers and creators, uh, you're supposed to know the pattern because the audience knows it. So know your audience, know what they're expecting, but don't give them what they expect every time. Do something different. Uh, know the pattern, but break it somehow. That This is like a, a true artistic obligation. You are obliged every time you tell a story to surprise the audience somehow by doing something they didn't expect with that same pattern, leave something out, uh, double something up, have two of something uh, happening. Because by rules, you're supposed to be efficient. You're not supposed to repeat things. But if Mm -hmm. you do, it gives uh, a certain poetic uh, quality to it. Uh, The Lord of the Rings really woke me up to that uh, because it has a lot of repetition and doubling or tripling. Like there's uh, two hobbits and there's two uh, strong leader guys, uh, Faramir and Boromir, and there's two wizards and there's two towers and there's two lands and, you know, uh, two fairy princesses and, you know, uh, almost everything is doubled. And Hollywood normally would look at that and say, well, cut half of that. We don't need <laughs> It couldn't it just be one tower. <laughs> we save a lot of money if we just had yeah, right. one tower and one <laughs> hobbit. So, uh, you know, uh, the the kind of conventional thinking says trim it down. But, you, again, it breaks the pattern a little bit and makes you study and, and see it anew and, and look at it with fresh eyes. 
So uh, another example of this is uh, this idea of the mentor, that, that there, there is uh, a strong human wish that there would be somebody who's older and wiser who can advise me, you know, like a parent or a grandparent or a, a wizard or a, a fairy godmother or something who would help me out when I'm in a jam. And uh, that is very persistent in uh, the way people tell stories. They almost automatically create such a character. Uh, but it's very interesting and upsetting almost to the audience in a good way uh, when you leave that out. And there isn't any mentor. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, a film that won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film some years ago called Amour. Uh, French film, and um, uh, it's about a, a, a elderly couple, and the wife is slowly losing her mind and is slowly dying, and the husband uh, is trying to help her, and he looks around for a mentor, like the doctor or his daughter or somebody who, you know, neighbor or somebody who can help, and there, there's nobody who has a handle on his problem. He's totally alone with it. And that's actually psychological horror. It's a horror film in a way mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to show how isolated and helpless uh, this man is. Um, so it, it was a, it woke me up a little bit to the, the power of subtraction, of taking something out of the design once in a while creates a really wonderful tension. I think about it in the Star Wars movies when Obi-Wan Kenobi is removed from the scene, it creates this whole new dynamic for Luke Skywalker. And then he comes back in various ways later, but uh, the, the subtraction of him from it was, uh, I remember how it felt seeing the first Star Wars movie when, when he uh, disappeared. It, it was a bit of a shock. So uh, that's a good thing. It's good for the audience to be shocked in that way. I guess that's the function of a, a mentor figure is like eventually the hero's going to have to like face uh, whatever they have to face alone. And uh, that's kind of mm -hmm. what makes a hero. And uh, for our listeners back back at home, you know, uh, we've kind of talked about uh, the hero's journey in episode 12 and uh, the return uh, section of the hero's journey in episode 56 but mm -hmm. um what i what i kind of like about campbell is it's a uh, departure initiation and then return and in in your uh writer's journey there's an act one act two and an act three and like you said like it's, it's a 12 uh 12 step cycle because you kind of return from once you came but you kind of go through a journey and kind of come back to where you were the first time. And I just think it's like cool how it goes like ordinary world, call to adventure, refusal of the call, meeting with the mentor, crossing the first threshold, and then act two, test allies and enemies, approach to the inmost cave, ordeal, reward, act three, the road back and resurrection. It just does feel like a little bit like kind of like simplified to the basics and we kind of talked about like how like you kind of uh kind of had to fine tune that to find that but um i guess like in some ways like life 
the journey's never complete. So what have you learned from writing this book the first time and then revisiting it through the years, like including the 25th anniversary edition? Well, I uh, first of all, uh, between editions, do a lot of traveling. Uh, the book has been a wonderful magic carpet for me. As soon as it was published, I got invitations to go and speak mostly in Europe um, and uh, have, have traveled a lot. And I got to hear on my travels uh, the reaction of people in different cultures. And I found um, I had some cultural biases. Uh, I, I, you know, coming from Western uh, American culture, uh, I made some assumptions and the rest of the world doesn't make the same assumption uh, about heroes and uh, about uh, stories in, in general or, or uh, you know, what, what happens or, or what, how the audience takes things in is quite different from culture to culture. So I had to make some adjustments to that and, you know, include that in my thinking. I, I found that uh, as you move further east in Europe, people become a little more cynical and uh, they aren't so ready to accept the idea of a hero who thinks he can change the world or she thinks that uh, uh, her little contribution is going to make any difference. Uh, they're they're a, a little less eager to accept those things. So I had to bring some of that into it. And then also, I, I just kept going deeper and deeper in my work for the studios. Uh, I had opportunity to test these ideas uh, in the, this very intense crucible of uh, developing stories uh, with high power people, you know, very intense people arguing their points very uh, forcefully. Uh, so everything got a real good shakedown and uh, became stronger for it, I, I think. Uh, but it, it, it did require uh, some adjusting and, and going deeper. The book got thicker because I kept adding pieces as if it were a toolkit. And I realized, oh, I put in a hammer and a screwdriver but now you also need, uh, you know, some nails and uh, a T-square and various other things. So uh, I added more stuff like chapters on uh, catharsis, the idea that the characters in the story go through something and they probably will have at some point an outburst or, or a breakthrough. And you want that in the audience, too. So I wrote a chapter about that. I looked at uh, one chapter on polarity, the fact that, which I noticed in the very first weeks of reading scripts from the studio, every script was polarized that between two forces, the men and the women in a romance, uh, the uh, old generation and the younger generation in a family drama, uh, the good guys and the bad guys in a Western, you know, um, uh, everything was polarized. And so I wrote about polarity as a principle, you know, that was necessary to, uh, to create conflict. So I, I've tried to make it as uh, comprehensive and, and complete and thorough as, as I possibly can. Yeah, and I would imagine that something uh, like a, a document like this is probably always going to have to evolve a little bit as kind of I would, I would 
think as you know you go through the decades and kind of the emphasis on those different steps in a story kind of change uh you know depending on where we're at societally and and things like that so there's always going to be uh kind of different iterations and different interpretations of the way these stories are being told well yes and um now i'm confronting in the present moment a kind of unexpected development the book was written with um feature films in mind of about 90 minutes to two hours. And it seemed to work pretty well for say Disney animation, which was about 80 to 90 minutes. Uh, it worked well for Marvel films that are coming in uh, now about two hours more. Much longer. Longer. But it worked pretty well for those size films. But now I'm confronted with this shift of uh, entertainment uh, away from two-hour uh, experiences and into this universe of long-form or limited series uh, where there's uh, both more time for the artists to dig deeper in the stories and develop whole worlds and develop psychology much deeper, but also for the audience to enjoy it in a different way over a longer period of time. And that means I've got to think again about my structure because it, it has to be stretched out. And mm -hmm. um, I always thought of it as a diagram, you know, in the back of my mind, and I actually have diagrams in the book like this, that it looks sort of like a suspension bridge that has two pylons uh, at the end of the first act and at the end of the second act uh, that kind of make a structure, uh, like a suspension bridge. But with these longer form things, it's a much longer bridge. It's like mm -hmm. one of these huge bridges that goes through the Florida Keys for 100 miles. <laughs> and, uh, there, there are a few long bridges like that in the world, and they have many pylons. Mm. They, have, they have lots of turning points. And uh, they have long spans in between. So uh, I, I have to do some serious uh, study and rethinking uh, about that. I, I would say that um, uh, I'm observing a, a problem with these long form, form things. Uh, there's a, a genre, for example, that's come up that, that I think people are, are calling fake it till you make it stories, which are about... Um, you know, some entrepreneur who starts something like Theranos or uh, mm -hmm. uh, 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 car services or something like that. And uh, they, they've got nothing really, but they have a big idea and a big personality and they push it until uh, it all falls apart on them. And some of those stories are feeling really stretched out thin and attenuated because they really don't have enough material and so they'll carve off a whole episode of an hour uh, to deal with some little thing, which could be in a feature film dealt with in two scenes, yeah. or one scene. Uh, like, are they going to find out about us? They almost found out about us and we've, we've been discovered as a fraud. Oh, we got away with, it. you know, yeah. but, but that can be stretched out to an hour um, and, and not always uh, in a good way. So, uh, we, 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 uh, we're learning. We're all learning as we go into this uh, new world. I like the longer format. It's yeah. exactly uh, very uh, entertaining to live with things for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And we sort of had that uh, even before the current phase with uh, these longer form experiences like the Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter, where you would go year to year. It was like a Christmas event uh, every year. And uh, you sort of lived with it and chewed on it uh, during the year and anticipated the next episode. So, uh, so we, we, to stay uh, current and conscious, you have to keep adapting, as as you said, Cashin. That's that's absolutely right. Yeah, and kind of how you were talking about that suspension bridge, it's like 30-60-30, kind of like that ratio. And mm-hmm. maybe, like, when I went to go see The Hobbit, I was expecting it to be a much shorter experience because I'm like, oh, it's a short book. There's right. two movies. Like, yeah, we're it's going to be so short. And then... I was like, well, that was a good ending. And my friend is like, it's it's not over. And I was like, what? Like that, it just, it seemed like a nice place to end it. And then it's like, oh, it's a, another hour, you know? Uh, and like, part of me is like, oh, they're making three hour movies. But I guess that's part of uh, how stories evolve. And like, there's so many streaming services and like so many new shows coming out. And like, I guess I just have to, like, I don't know, it, it's like, there's so many books, so many movies, so many TV shows, and like, so many places I want to travel, like, it's just like, sometimes it feels like incomprehensible to even like, uh, kind of become an expert on one little niche thing, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, I guess like, it just seems like in this day and age, like, we're really exploring like, streaming services and like there's going to be more long-form television but like you say like uh sometimes it's just like tv kind of feels random like uh it'll be like this show had a lot of potential but it gets canceled you know and this one like they keep doing it you know like for 12 seasons and it's like what's the point you know uh (laughs) so i i kind of hope that there's going to be more television like uh streaming television like where it kind of just feels more like the story is more in charge rather than kind of just random metrics. And I, cause I was, I was thinking about this cause I was like, Oh, like I'm trying to prepare for this podcast episode. Like I was thinking how stories have been evolving and I was like, you know what? Like maybe what's going to happen is just movies get longer and I'm going to have to learn to just deal with like three hour and 30 minute movies, you know? And, uh, kind of longer form televisions, television series. And like, I guess we can see it more as an opportunity to kind of like explore these uh, narratives we love. And I, I kind of like that you mentioned like Harry Potter because I, I grew up with those books. I grew up with the movies and now n- new generations are uh, going to be able to experience Hogwarts legacy. And uh, we kind of keep retelling uh, the, these stories, like, uh, and maybe, like, back in the day in Athens, they're like, oh, do we have to hear yet another story about the House of Atreides, like, and maybe mm-hmm. that's kind of, you could contrast that with me being like, ah, oh, you know, Marvel's fun, but, like, is it just Marvel? Like, mm-hmm. maybe the, it's just the House of Atreides of our day, you know, but uh, yeah. yep, it's interesting. I think that's kind of the, the important thing is for, you know, creatives and uh, you know, writers and uh, people making TV shows and, uh, you know, doing all these 
all of these things are able to to kind of see where the envelope is being pushed and figure out how to adapt um, what they're trying to do and to to kind of fill that segment um, in a creative way. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about the streaming services, and I remember, you know, kind of those first couple of like Netflix original shows were great because directors weren't tied down. They didn't they didn't have to go on for twelve seasons because of of sponsorships. They could tell the story they wanted to tell, and that was over. But now you have a bunch of streaming services, so they're like, well, we have to have you know more episodes because we need people watching our episodes instead of something else. So I think it's it's just one of those things. It's just a it's just a change in in technology and storytelling mediums, and uh, you know. People just kind of have to have to navigate that and figure figure that out. Um, like you mentioned, three hour films. This was like the year of the three hour film. I think mm-hmm. like nine of the ten uh, best picture nominees were were all like over two and a half hours this year or something like that. So, um, so I think it's yeah, I think it's just adapting and and figuring that out. And um, like you said, Chris, I think you know something like uh, the writer's journey and you know how how you're able to kind of take a look, <laughs> take a step back and look at it again and and kind of adjust it for for this uh this new age of uh, storytelling that we're getting into is going yeah, to be really I, important i think those who are making these three-hour films would be good to uh remember what alfred hitchcock said they asked him how long should a movie be and he said well what's the capacity of the human bladder you know, how, <laughs> how long yep. can people sit there and uh that that got him to about uh, 90 minutes to two hours yep. so uh you know they're they're pushing the that uh, human envelope a little bit with these longer ones, but there's an appetite for it. And it's a funny thing because on the other end of the scale, we also have growth in the area of very, very, very short form storytelling. And yeah. that's wonderful too. Uh, and, and people have an appetite for that. Uh, it, for a while, it looked like that's the way everything was going to go, that there was a push to, uh, you know, every, everything will be looked at on a watch or on a, a little screen. And so it, it has to be a short little consumable thing, uh, maybe like a, an episode of uh, Rick and Morty or something like that, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. or, or even even shorter, like uh, the clips on Robot Chicken uh, are, are uh, consumable. You know, you just mm-hmm. eat like popcorn. Um, but then there became this other appetite for these longer form uh things where you live with with the characters for a long time and you're really sad if you get hooked on something you're really sad when it comes to the end this has happened to my wife and i quite a number of times we say oh no gilded age is over they they, <laughs> they just got rolling and all <laughs> that, that's right what are we going to do now <laughs> I, I i just got into hating this character and now i uh, they, 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 it's uh, it's over for now so um, yeah, funny how it works on, on both ends of the scale. Recently on our, on our Patreon, I reviewed The Heroine's Journey by Maureen Murdoch. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I also just finished yesterday The Heroine's Journey by Gail Carriger. Uh, and last year, my favorite book uh, that I read last year, 2021, was The Heroine with a Thousand and One Faces by Maria Tatar. And yes. I kind of... It kind of just got me thinking because uh, we're uh, we're telling more stories nowadays, and like uh, the hero's journey, monomyth, the heroine's journey. Like, I feel like there's like some differences to respect. There's different uh, perspectives, and we're kind of moving 
forward in time, but we're still working with these timeless patterns. And what I liked about Gail Carriger's book is, like, she mentioned, like, Harry Potter, if you kind of look at it, like, uh, he kind of goes a little bit more on a heroine's journey. And in Wonder Woman, Diana kind of goes more on a traditional hero's journey. Uh, So, like, we all kind of go on different journeys in our lives. And, uh, I mean... uh, Joseph Campbell was kind of writing uh, towards the post-war world, and you kind of wrote uh, your book, uh, well, like paper and then memo and then book, like kind of in response to the Vietnam cynicism. I guess, like, do you have any guesses as to, like, what additional lessons there are to be learned from the monomyth uh, in the age of corona and... uh, just kind of like everything that's going on right now? Well, you know, I look at uh, this journey pattern, uh, whether uh, the male journey, female journey, um, they are quite similar, but they are also different and very distinct. Um, But I look at them all, all of these things as uh, part of our birthright and that they were created originally, uh, or maybe we could say they were evolved as part of the human brain, a part of the wiring of the human brain. Uh, They were evolved exactly for times like this, when there is rapid change, uh, when there's social and technological upheaval, uh, when you have uh, threats on the horizon of uh, war or pestilence, and uh, famine and all these other uh, possibilities. Uh, the hero's journey, uh, male and female, is was made for this uh, and kind of uh, preserved in the form of little fairy tales and uh, uh, funny stories, but preserved for a, a high purpose, which is that we need this. These are survival tools that help us get orientation uh, and uh, give us some positive guidelines for uh, how to behave. You know, I, I've looked um, quite hard. I mentioned the time before, just before me, uh, which was the movies of the 30s and 40s. And uh, I could see that uh, as World War II approached, the movies began preparing the audience for it, uh, especially American films uh, made by the Warner Brothers in particular. Casablanca. Uh, yeah, Casablanca. And uh, that's actually after about, it's about 42, I think. Yeah. Uh, so we had gotten into the war by that time. But um, even before in 39, Warner Brothers was making films uh, that were preparing the audience for war in Europe, like they made Robin Hood and the Seahawk with Errol Flynn. And in both of those films, there was a European force that was threatening England and uh, back in history, uh, back in the time of the Spanish Armada, back in the time of uh, Robin Hood. And uh, these noble fighters played by Errol Flynn uh, were (laughs) resistance leaders, you know, who were uh, role models for people in, in countries in Europe and for young men in America that this is how you, you've you got to behave. Uh, in The Seahawk, one of my favorite 
films. Um, there's a, a scene where these pirates are in the jungle and it's too hot and everybody's got fever and they've uh, made mistakes and uh, gotten uh, undermined by the enemy and everything looks bad. And the hero, Errol Flynn, is uh, sitting there just as despondent as the men and he's all slumped over. And then you see him kind of pull himself up because he's remembered, I'm the leader and I have to take charge and I have to get the men's hopes up. And he stands up and he rallies everybody. And this is before the war, but I felt it was clearly trying to prepare people uh, for that. So movies have this uh, power that uh, they kind of predict what's around the corner and um, they, they prepare people mentally uh, for that. So right now, I think we're seeing uh, people are processing through zombie movies and through uh, uh, various genres, um, the things that are around the corner. I, I think like X-Men and uh, mutants of various kinds are uh, preparing us for changes that are going to come in human beings that, that will become uh, more technological, uh, more, uh, there'll be a, a more of a uh, less borderline between humans and machines. And that's sort of in the star Wars uh, universe as well. And matrix. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 All of this is uh, uh, kind of, uh, uh, of a thought process that's going on through these stories uh, where the, the audience is, is, you know, trying to adjust to coming change. So movies have their job to do. I mean, here's a quote from someone. Uh, Heroic stories also serve our collective mental health by reflecting society and its needs and desires. Do you recognize that quote? No, who's that? <laughs> oh, uh, I'm kidding. Uh, uh, it's, it's from your book, so... <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is a problem that uh, after a while I forget and people uh, are fresher on my book than I am. So they remember what I, what I said. Yeah. What you're kind of saying about fairy tales kind of reminded me of, of another quote that I love. Uh, Someday you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again by C.S. Lewis. And mm -hmm. I think like it's a lot wiser than I think like a lot of people give credit for like and I love that you brought up the adventures of Robin Hood because that's like sometimes Robin Hood is remade and I'm like the Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland. Uh, I think that's how you say her name. Uh, yeah, de Havilland. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I, like for me, it's just like the perfect Robin Hood movie and like one of my favorite movies. And uh, sometimes you can like say really deep things very simply and like fairy tales like. Uh, I think like and and mythology, uh, folklore, and movies can uh, prepare us or give us hope when they're really like sometimes it's hard to hope. And uh, I think that's it's kind of human to like have hope when we have no hope and like mm -hmm. pressing forward mm -hmm. when you have no hope is actually you know hope. I guess like what do you think? Uh, the importance of stories is like, why do we tell stories? Well, uh, it's to know ourselves. That that's something I'm I'm working on right now. Um, I'm writing an essay about character, 
uh, as always, through a lens of mythology. And uh, I, I'm looking at the origins of the word, which is a Greek word, um, and looking at how the Greeks studied character to know themselves, they made up stories about uh, gods and goddesses and heroes who represented character qualities like excellence and honor and uh, uh, courage and uh, uh, competition. Uh, all these things were uh, personified. They turned them into characters and stories in order to know themselves better. These things became, just like movies do for us, these things became mirrors. When you look at a movie, you're looking in a mirror and it's distorted uh, and it's magnified, but you're looking at yourself and uh, trying always to find yourself in it. And this is usually how people determine, is this a good movie or a bad movie? If it's about me, it's a good movie. If it reflects my life somehow, or it taught me something or surprised me about some aspect of my life, it's a good movie. And if it didn't relate to me at all, that's a bad movie. So uh, if I didn't learn anything about myself, it's a bad movie. So uh, meaningless, you know. So I, I think this is uh, the high function of these things is uh, to provide this sort of magnified, sort of distorted mirror, but it's, it's a way to look back at, at ourselves and, and know ourselves better. And, you know, every movie that touches me or moves me, you know, challenges my view of myself in some tiny way. Um, and a, another thing is the physicality of these things that you feel it in your body when the story touches a nerve, when it comes close to you. For example, uh, I watched Saving Private Ryan and, um, you know, enjoyed it and was impressed by it, but uh, was having a little trouble finding myself in it until uh, a scene at the end where uh, one of the characters uh, is now an old man and he goes to the gravesite of the, uh, of the captain and, uh, you know, pays his respects there. And that guy, the, the actor playing the older uh, uh, soldier, um, looked just like my dad. He had the same mm. sort of stooped, halting walk and, you know, a little bit of a pot belly and uh, losing his hair and so forth. And it just reminded, my, reminded me of my dad. It just hit me in the stomach that, oh, wow, this now this whole movie landed for me uh, in my heart with that one scene. So uh, it helped me respect my dad and, and know him better. So, uh, it, it, and, and I felt it physically. And that's what I'm saying. Right now I'm choking up a little bit, tearing up, just thinking about this. Uh, earlier, Brian, you said something, uh, and I can't remember the exact uh, detail of it, but you said something that seemed right and true to me about movies. Mm -hmm. And I felt something in my body when you said that. I got a little shiver down my back. And that mm -hmm. is a very important indicator to me that the story has connected somehow. Or even in story meetings when at the studio, we'd be talking about a story 
uh, the Lion King or something like that, somebody would say something like, you know, it would be really good if the, uh, the character uh, did this or that. And everybody in the room would sort of shiver and, and just feel, oh, that would be cool. Yeah, yeah, let's draw a picture of that. Let's put that in the film. Uh, you could, and I felt it as these tingles in my mm -hmm. body. So when you're in the presence of something beautiful and true, and when it lines up with your life or with truth, um, you, uh, you register in your brain, yeah, but you feel it in your body, in the organs of the body. And I have a whole uh, chapter about that uh, in the book now, uh, about how, how the body tells you when you're in the presence of a good story. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so that, that's, that's an important part of this whole puzzle is, is that it's not just a mental thing. It's, it's uh, enjoying a story is a physical process too. Yeah, mind, body, and soul, and uh, yeah, uh, I I believe in, in stories like and uh, and humanity and like what kind of unites us. Like stories, of course, can be used to divide people, but I think they're they're stronger when they when they unite people and yeah. and they help me believe and connect with like humanity as a whole, like all over the world through all times and uh i like what you said like stories are our birthright and mm -hmm. uh i wrote down like uh just so many things like i just love stories so much and probably i lack the ability you know uh, to really tell the stories i want to tell but even if it's just me like telling like a couple of people like i i love stories and it's been uh I've just been learning so much. I probably have talked too much, but I've been just trying to listen and uh, I learned so many, so many things. Uh, but just like, yeah, I, I believe in, in stories and uh, uh, just like uh, times have been changing so much. Uh, it kind of just seems like as I've been growing up, uh, there's just been so many like tumultuous changes, like, uh, like personally and uh, on a societal level and on a global level and uh, I think like whether they're to prepare us or to give us hope like stories do serve that purpose and like of course like I have my cultural biases too I'm, I'm still learning but uh, we keep going on the journey and uh, for me I, I think that's beautiful yeah, me too. It is beautiful. It's a beautiful thing uh, that we have them at all, that uh, it's part of uh, our humanity, and uh, that it, it is something that we evolved. And, and I, I think I, I'll, I'll sort of finish with that, that it's, it is part of your birthright and your way of uh, knowing yourself and, and uh, possessing the world you live in and understanding your place in that. Movies have that, uh, stories have that ability. Yeah. And thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. I, uh, we both uh, learned so much. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah, where, absolutely. Yeah. And where can our listeners keep up with what you're doing? Well, I, uh, I don't have a, a huge uh, presence on, online, except I have a WordPress blog. Uh, so it's uh, 
uh, Chris Vogler at wordpress.com, I think something like that. Not, not hard to find. I, I, uh, I put down thoughts occasionally there and then there'll be a new, uh, new expression uh, with this character essay that I'm doing. Uh, so that's something to look forward to down the line. Yeah, oh, great. I'm eagerly yeah, anticipating that. So, again, yeah, we'll, thank you so we'll much keep for. Our... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yep. Yeah, we'll keep our we'll keep our eyes out for that, and we'll uh, we'll link to that uh, WordPress uh, blog down in the uh, show description as well. Yeah. Okay. And link your books too. So. I'll send you the correct uh, address for that. And, and awesome. Post it. All right. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about these uh, things that I love and are, are so exciting and I think really useful for people. Inspired a Galaxy is an imprint of the ORP and can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Google Podcasts, as well as everywhere else that Anchor Podcasts are distributed. And you can connect with the ORP on Twitter. It's at Old Republic Pod. And if you want to connect with me on Instagram, it's at Astro underscore Droid underscore. And the ORP and Inspired a Galaxy podcasts Patreon can be found under www.patreon.com forward slash Old Republic Podcast. The Inspired a Galaxy theme was composed by Alistair Shoreman. Alistair can be found at alistairsounds.wixsite.com forward slash Alistair Sounds. This episode of Inspired a Galaxy has been brought to you by our supporters on Patreon. May the force be with you. Hello there. This is Jolie Bindo from the Holocronicles of a Jedi podcast. You're listening to the Old Republic podcast. Please like and subscribe on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating review, and Brian and Cassia will feature it on the pod. Now, enjoy the show, and may the Force be with you, always.